0: Welcome to She Inspires Me. I'm your host, Caroline Bruni, founder of She Inspires Me and Organize Curate Design. Launched as a Facebook passion project back in 2017, She Inspires Me has been reborn to highlight the incredible women we all encounter in our everyday lives and how we can take inspiration from them. Thanks to our key sponsor, Organise Curate Design, I welcome you to listen and get inspired as we showcase these incredible women. Welcome to another episode of She Inspires Me. Today, I have with me Fiona Higgins, who is an author. We... um, we've had a really funny morning. I'm always really honest on the podcast so we've been playing around with um, a bit of technology and whatever else but we got there in the end and we are ready to go. How
1: are you today Fiona? (laughs) Well thanks. I think some of our uh, playing around with technology might have been user related i.e. I am the (laughs) inept user of technology at times (laughs) so thank you for your guidance.
0: We got there in the end and we did. all that matters is that they can hear you and looking at all my indicators as we're recording, they can hear you. So let's get stuck in. I will um, let our listeners know a little bit about you. So you. Fiona Higgins is an author of the recently released An Unusual Boy um, and is also the author of three previous novels, Fearless, Wife on the Run, The Mother's Group, A Memoir, Love, in the Age of a Drought, her novels have been translated internationally in the Netherlands, France, Germany, Spain and Estonia. Outside of writing, Fiona has a tertiary qualifications in humanities, social sciences and Indonesian studies and a long-standing career in the Australian not-for-profit sector. Over the past 20 years, she's worked with organisations specialising in international development, youth at risk, rural and regional issues and youth mental health. She's the founding director of the Australian Philanthropic Services, APS, which inspires effective philanthropy and provides education and practical support for individuals and advisors. A passionate advocate for positive education strategies to support youth mental wellbeing, Fiona is also a volunteer crisis support worker um, with one of Australia's national crisis and suicide hotlines. She lives in Sydney and enjoys ocean swimming, early morning runs and arguing with her children about Monopoly. So we'll have to touch on that because that made me giggle when I read that. So welcome, Fiona. It is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I am always fascinated by authors. I really take my hat off to anyone that can pen one book let alone the amount that you have achieved um cuz from what i've heard and i've dabbled in a little bit of writing more just for what we do in the business but from what i heard i've heard it, it can be really challenging um mm-hmm. so before we get stuck into the author part of your life i'm really curious to i'm always curious to kind of go back to your childhood and um, to learn a little bit about you and what it was like for you growing up. So was 10-year-old Fiona, did she have her eyes set on being an author? Was that something that you were already doing as a child?
1: Oh, well, I I certainly didn't have my eyes set on being an author um, at all when I was a child, but I I have always written. Um, I did as a kid um always find time um and I had a deep desire to write so I would I was a big diary writer I'd keep journals um and I liked to dabble in poetry um which I still like to do even though it's certainly not publishable Um, and I was certainly a big reader I think reading and writing, understandably, go together. Um, so I was always in a book, um, and you know, some of my favourite authors were the kinds of authors that I think many people grew up in, grew up on. You know, children of the seventies and the eighties. Um, Enid Blyton um, was a bit. I was a big fan of Enid Blyton. Uh, you know, moving from the Faraway Tree to to the famous Five um, Nancy Drew mysteries. Um, I used to enjoy fantasy and sci-fi, particularly as I got older into the teenage years, but I never really had an ambition to be an author at all. Um, so, no. <laughs> you enjoyed
0: as a child. And I think that's the thing. We're, we're so fortunate that, um, you know, a lot of us, especially growing growing up in Australia, have the capacity to really have access to to books. Like public schools in most cases have a great, um, range of, of books that children can access. And a lot of schools, public schools have libraries that you can borrow books even when you're in primary schools. So that can really fuel that passion for yes. reading and writing.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and you know, I, I still recall my first, um, experience of publication. So if, you know, if my appetite was whetted at all, it was probably when I was around nine when, um, you know, as a function, as you say, you know, we're very lucky. Schools are well resourced and we have access to opportunities that many others, perhaps in other parts of the world, don't. And one particular opportunity came up, there was a poetry competition being run at school. And I thought, oh, I'll go go into into that. And it was a big prize. It was a hundred bucks, which back in 1982 was, you know, a lot of money. And I I won um this this prize. Wow. With with an entry mind you that looking back on is just really quite curious because at the age of 9 I had written this poem called your local Truckee, which was about
0: <laughs> which what was a great battle.
1: <laughs> which was about the lives and experience of long-haul truck drivers hauling road trains across the Nullarbor Plain. And I should tell you, I didn't come from a trucking family.
0: I was going <laughs> to say, how did you even know how to write about that at night?
1: <laughs> Well, I didn't, but I think, I think that in terms of you know the childhood me, I think I mm-hmm. did, even at an early age, spend a lot of time imagining what it was like being other people. Yeah. And that informed my interest as a reader, but then it it also came out in in that early writing. Um, so I had no experience of tr- trucking and nodos and you know <laughs> tats well, supply chains not at
0: night, unless you had a, as you said, grew up in a trucking family. But wow, that is amazing that your imagination was already so full, um, mm. which is a, the beautiful thing about being a child. I think our imaginations are so full when we're younger so that's so true so then so then um about 10 years ago I'm thinking based on what I'm understanding you released your first book was that in around 2010 does
1: that sound right? yes no that's exactly right it was um was it 2010 or was it I think it was 2009 so yes yeah um, thereabouts it was my first and- book and
0: and so Love in the Age of a Drought, um, which is a memoir. Now, I've always, when I've heard the word memoir, I've always thought that's something that people write when they're really old. <laughs> when they're <laughs> wise. Nice. I know, really old and wise and they've lived so much of their life. Yes. You are, you're not, I don't class you as really old. Um, <laughs> so, what time to you do to, to, to pen a memoir at mm. 10 years ago? Mm. Um and why that format as as the first
1: book? Mm, that's it's interesting. Um, so, in keeping with the fact that I never had an ambition to become a published author, the Love in the Age of Drought was a project that happened almost accidentally because. Um, I, at the time that I wrote it, I had I was you know, a born and bred city girl with no understanding of agricultural Australia. Um, <laughs> um, and I had met a farmer at an ethics conference in Melbourne and promptly fallen in love with him and um, yeah, and I should say I'm still in love with him. He's my husband. Oh, that's but... great. He'll be happy to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'll send him the link to the podcast straight up Yeah.
0: So at this point on the podcast, I confess that I am
1: still in love with you. <laughs> that's right, 8 minutes 54 in. <laughs> um, and so we um, we proceeded to start this relationship even though he lived in a tiny rural town called Jandowie, population 700 in oh, wow. um, rural Queensland and I was based in Sydney and was not at all from his world. You know, I was a vegetarian, I was very <laughs> <here we laughs> um, the first line, I was a vegetarian. I'm like, yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, in rural Australia, when you you know, in some parts, uh, you know, when you say you're a vegetarian, they then offer you chicken or fish. So you know, <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> that's
0: so true. I've, I've been a vegetarian on and off. Well, but but I have been a vegetarian for the majority of my life, and mm. that is so true. Mm. When you go to country Victoria or country Australia, yep, they yeah. do. They don't understand what you mean.
1: No. <laughs> So um, he and I came from very different worlds, but we proceeded to have a long-distance relationship, and after about two and a half years we had to make a decision, you know, would the farmer move to Sydney or would the latte-loving vegetarian move to Jandau? <laughs> and so you can guess
0: what happened. Um, I, think I, I think I know based on the book what happened.
1: But... <laughs> that's right. And and basically once I got there, of course, being very green to all things rural and not mm-hmm. understanding Uh, production or consumption, really, even as a consumer myself, um, I discovered this world of agriculture um, and rural and regional issues. And I was interested and and engaged. And I started writing emails to my friends all, all up and down the seaboard, but also overseas, but mostly friends in the city just with anecdotes of what was going, what was going on in my life, you know, discovering snakes in the toilet and, you know, the,
0: <laughs> entering the oh, local CWA scon competition.
1: Thought of that, that would frighten me a lot. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it prompted all this, these emails to friends. And then one day, a friend of mine who was based in New York sent me an email back saying, look, these emails are really quite funny. They're entertaining. They're engaging. It's." interesting what's happening to you but it's also interesting how you're learning about uh, production and consumption and environmental sustainability and asking questions about reconciling environmental sustainability with agriculture and the use of our resources responsibly. Have you ever considered writing a book and I said, "Well, I don't know how to write a book," and she said, <laughs> "Well, I could tell you how to write a book because she, in fact, was is a, a literary agent." And so, over the course of about three months, um, she she you know gave me a, a quick course in how to write a book, and I then proceeded to move what had been a collection of anecdotes about my new life in rural Australia into what I thought was a, a publishable format. Of course it wasn't um, and there were lots of iterations but um, by the time it, you know, it, it got to sort of the second or third draft, my, my friend Virginia Lloyd said to me, look, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's looking really good and I, I think I could probably submit this to a publisher and um, I'll do that for you, you know, just, just because you're my friend. And I said, oh, yes, please, yeah. not really expecting it to go anywhere and um, um, and then it did um, and this was about a year before Farmer Wants a Wife became a phenomenon oh wow yes and so there were actually three offers from a variety of publishers because there was obviously something in the water that year around yeah I mean there's That's always the I to explore you know it's a permanent trope really um, city girl meets country boy but for some reason in that particular year 2008 the Publishing Australia wanted a book about you know city rural romance and so that became my memoir at the grand old age of twenty eight. And you know, I haven't
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, I was like, hmm, it seemed a bit yes, yeah, but no. I and but that is a whole phase of your life and and such a turning point as well. And and wow, what a wonderful friend that because it takes effort, it takes that moment for someone to reach out and say, This is good. This has potential. I encourage you to do something with this and to keep pushing you along because, as you've learned, the process can be very challenging. And but what an, an incredible friendship to have someone like that in your life as well. So, Absolutely, wow. you've you've
1: hit the nail on the head there. And um, you know it's something that I've been uh, blessed to receive in my life, having great female friends that are not only encouraging. Mm verbally but are actually prepared to put their put their money where their words are i suppose uh, yep. not not literally their money but but really prepared to take some practical action and i i'm very grateful for that and i also try to do that myself i think it's very very yeah. important
0: yeah definitely so since 2009 10 hmm. you've now published is it four more books? Yes, and the, yeah, yeah, and you just released a new one. So, did it come out last month, uh, October? Yes,
1: October the twentieth. It was it was born, it was birthday for an unusual oh. boy. <laughs> no, <it happened.
0: laughs> so we're recording mid-November. Um, we're recording this episode, and um, so it's still still really fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you tell us about the new book and? Um, you know what it's about and and I guess to start off like what you think will relate to people or what it's about in mm. that sense.
1: Yeah, sure. Um so it's a work of fiction and the main character is actually an 11-year-old boy. The narrative um progresses in the eyes of both Jackson, the 11-year-old, as well as his mum, Julia. Yeah. Um, So Jackson is a bit different to other kids. He has trouble finding his words. Um, He blinks a lot when he's stressed. Uh, He likes to do headstands to calm his mind. Um, And he has a phenomenal memory um, Mm. from events of, you know, his history from when he was even very small. And Jackson's mum, Julia, has been looking for a bit of support from health professionals for many years because, uh, you know, he... Has slight learning issues and some trouble maintaining friendships. He has no diagnosis at all, but family therapists have described him as new, as neurodiverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and because he's different, he stands out from other kids, and that um, makes him quite vulnerable. Um, Mm. he's recently moved to a new school and he strikes up a friendship with another child and his mum's really happy about that because she really wants him to make friendships. But unfortunately this other child leads Jackson astray online first and then in -hmm. the school playground and that leaves him accused of a potential criminal offence which he didn't actually commit. But you can imagine this family is thrust into the fight Mm. of their lives Um, first of all trying to understand exactly what happened um, and secondly trying to defend their quite vulnerable unusual boy from um, systems that are really designed for for so-called normal Um, yeah so it's a difficult experience that the family goes through um, but ultimately um, the family does pull together they're able to uh, rally, um, move through the crisis, survive, and ultimately Jackson um, can thrive. So mm. ultimately the, the, the book is is about the healing power of empathy and the, the power that can be unlocked when we as parents stop and listen to what our children are actually telling us. So in mm. terms of, you know, um, your earlier question about um, how people might relate. Um, I think uh, obviously parents will be able to relate to this book, Mm -hmm. but not exclusively so. There's been a lot of reviews on Goodreads so far, even in the first couple of weeks, which has been great. And certainly it's been resonating with parents, anyone who's ever had a challenging day with their child, and that's most of (laughs) us, um, but who just kept, you know, just kept, turning up and putting one foot in front of the other and, and doing their best for their child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think most parents I know do that and um, we do it in our own flawed way, but nevertheless, we keep doing it. So this novel really is my attempt at a tribute to the resilience of parents of all types, but parents mm-hmm. under pressure, really. So I think parents relate. Um, yeah, uh,
0: yeah, really- resilience Mm. would be a really consistent theme right the way through the book as well because it's not only it sounds as though not only does Jackson have to show his resilience but his family does as well and and uh, as a parent myself even just hearing you describe that I 100% understand mm. the the emotional the emotion that would come out from reading something like that but also I would assume, as you said, it's not just for parents. So um, when you have a friend or have had an experience where where someone is just a little bit outside of the box that society has decided and deemed to be normal, yes. um, that and when you watch people or support people through any kind of adversity, it it, it makes us realise how challenging it can be To sit outside that box, and there actually aren't as many people as we think that fit in the box. Well, exactly. There's actually more that fit outside of it than Mm.
1: inside of it. And indeed, the the box itself is by definition a construct. And and there is so much um, beauty and strength and creativity that lies in being different. Um, mm, yeah. And and you're right. It's not it's not just kids who are different. I mean, we've all met those quirky kids. Perhaps we were those yeah, quirky kids to become adults. That's right. They become adults, and um, you know, I'm sure we've all met hyper focused, interesting, unusual adults um, who who don't necessarily um, fit in those boxes. But it, it's important that we um, are able to uh, appreciate. The many strengths that that kind of diversity brings, in the same way that we appreciate all other, we should appreciate all other kinds of human diversity.
0: Oh, it's so true, and I think we and um, we've had quite a few guests on the podcast so far, and we have talked about diversity in so many different ways. Um, but this topic, this particular. Version of diversity, for lack of better words, um, it's one that I think can be really challenging, especially as a parent, um, mm. because you know I I have a child who's on the spectrum, and mm. the moment that we kind of I got my head around that, I realised how unfair the world can be sometimes because it's not his. Um, his differences are not on the outside, mm. so mm. Um, that could be even more challenging um, because you can't see what's happening and and yes, expectations to fit in the box are, are still so high. so mm. um, so with that in mind and, and and what you've shared with us so far, what were you hoping to achieve by writing this particular novel?
1: Well, I really wanted to. <laughs> Emphasize the theme that there is no such thing as normal. That normal is a construct. That normal is only a cycle on your washing machine. You know. Yeah. Um, yep. And I really did want to, um, you know, the reason why I sank into the perspective of Jackson, as in telling, advancing the story through his eyes, as well as that of his mum was to really um, try to enable readers to empathise with that experience in a way that they might not if they simply read academic or news items related to neurodiversity or kids that do have some kind of diagnosis or on the spectrum, have ADHD, have Asperger's, et cetera. It's one thing to think about these things in theory, and quite another when you um, sink into the skin as far as you can through fiction um, mm. in, into a character, and that was what I wanted to do—to demonstrate, to perhaps encourage empathy. I'm I'm all about empathy, really. It's a it's a huge value and the theme in my life, um, mm-hmm. and to ensure that different kids or adults, for that matter. Um, Are a celebrated rather than pathologized, It's certainly understood, um, but but going that extra step beyond understanding, really wanting to um, encourage people to, to cherish difference as a strength rather than yeah. as you know retreating from it as a threat. So that that was sort of what I wanted to achieve, but. Um I generally don't set out um with it with a mission <laughs> it, when I write. I'm I usually write about something that's consuming me and mm. you know I have a pretty intense um parenting life myself. I have 3 kids. And my observation is that you know Everyone is just doing their best. Everyone, um, you know, is so true. It, it, you know, is like that duck uh, paddling across <laughs> the pond. There's a sort of serene exterior. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're one you. Look <laughs> at you right now. I can see you, and you look like this serene, amazing radio presenter and, uh, and podcast, <laughs> podcaster. Yeah. And, and perhaps people wouldn't wouldn't know you know what Mm. you went through over the breakfast table this morning and that's very true um and my in my fiction I try to um normalize that idea that you know there is there's no such thing as normal there's no such thing as perfection we're all doing our best and we need to support each other as far as we can as parents and humans um in that endeavor of of trying to do our best
0: Mm, and cool. just being kind to each other, just knowing that there is a lot going on under the surface of the serene, and and it's unfortunate as well because we we can we can ignore the people that look like they've got it together when mm. sometimes they they may be fighting ten times harder, but then we can judge um, the people that l- have let it all fall apart mm. publicly, mm. and yes. we can. Be a bit judgmental at times, um, thinking that they should have it together more, or they should be better at masking it, and and it's no different. Um, and that level of empathy and just simple human kindness is is definitely something that I think we're hearing more about. Uh, I think the world that we live in today, in some ways, especially with social media and and this year of twenty twenty, we've definitely We've heard people talk about it more mm. and really be a lot more vulnerable, which is which is great because then it just reminds us all that we're human and mm. and we're all doing our best.
1: Yes, we are. Yes, and I mean, so- social media. Now that you say it, I mean, I don't want to um, hijack your your interview agenda, but social media is is a theme in this book as well. It plays a role. Yeah. Um, well. Perhaps not social. Well, social media does play a role in terms of the fallout for the family and the way yeah. the community responds as soon as you know there's wind think of this incident on yep. social, yep. which which can be yep. quite unhelpful, as we all know.
0: Um, oh, definitely the 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 mo- like the. Pack mentality, the pylon that happens. Yeah, definitely. That's we right. see that all the time. The mob cancel culture and that sort of
1: that's, stuff. Yep. That's right. Um, but but also earlier at the beginning of the narrative, you know, the way uh, Jackson is led astray by mm-hmm. his new found friend isn't in, in fact online because yeah. they have a play awesome date world. and you know, mum and dad are working or not available as many of us are. And yeah, uh, the the pair of them are left to their own devices literally and, and something mm. happens that then stimulates yeah. a cascading effect in the playground that the next day and beyond. And um, this is something that I struggle with myself and that consumes me, hence it appears in yeah. my fiction, you know, this idea that we're, you know, living through a grand human experiment, the consequences of which we're not entirely aware of.
0: Oh, yeah. Definitely, <laughs> I, I, I especially as a parent, you are a hundred percent speaking my language. I have this real love hate thing going on with social media, and as mm. I said before, I've seen this beauty and vulnerability and kindness and opportunity, great, mm. fantastic. I've seen all the other sides of that scale as well, and and it terrifies me um, at how vulnerable and innocent and my children are and mm. that they yeah. have access to some of this information and some of these platforms and and that will continue to grow as they get older and mm. and their mental health is a, a top um, priority for me mm. now before we jump on to a whole heap of stuff that I actually want to unpack from what we just said <laughs> um what we're just talking about yes I just have one more question in mm. regards to the book I have heard that you have some characters that are in this book but that have appeared somewhere else or in one of your other papers. How how have you linked them and how does that work? Ah,
1: yes. Um, So it's an interesting thing from a creative point of view um, because I I don't – I don't plan this. It just happens. They they weasel their way in. They've um, got a mind of their own. I love well, it. They do, actually. It's as though they exist in a parallel universe. And when I finish a, a, a book and it gets published, it's almost as though at any moment I might bump into one of them at the shops. It very oh, much feels like that. That
0: would be amazing to create a <laughs> character and then feel like you've
1: met them or yes. walked past them
0: down. Yeah, that's
1: right. Um, And so a couple of the characters here, including the child that um, leads Jackson astray, um, his mum and his dad, they're in uh, my debut novel Mother's Group which came out in uh, 2012 and is, as one can intuit, about a mother's group. Yep. Um, it yep. you know tracks the lives of six women in the first year of their firstborn's life. As we all know, mm-hmm. that's a very intense period and very, there are good mother's groups, there are not so good mother's groups, there's all mm-hmm. types of shenanigans that uh, can or perhaps don't go on at times in mm-hmm. mothers' groups, and um, that story um, explores the very different experience of motherhood that these six women have. Um, because, of course, motherhood is just not a homogenous experience. It's it's <laughs> it's one of no, those things not. that we all <laughs> we all experience very differently. Um, although you mm-hmm. wouldn't know that from a Johnson and Johnson commercial, would you? You know? Oh God, no! All the magazine, <laughs> no. we're all the same, aren't we?
0: That's right. The so box that we were talking about before.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So these characters um, uh, have turned up. Uh, you know, about nine, nine no, ten, ten years after the mothers' group. Wow. So that so so Digby, who was a toddler in the mothers' group, that this is the kid that yeah. leads Jackson Australia. He's mm-hmm. he's grown up, and uh, he was a bit of a troublesome to- toddler in the mothers' group, and now he's a troublesome tween. <laughs>
0: Oh my goodness. Wow, that's so good. that's so fascinating um that it's not really even planned that it yeah. that they do they have their own personalities and and mm. in the time of this 8 year period um or 7 8 year period that that character has grown and developed somewhere in your psyche and you have been able to pick him back up and put him into this new piece so wow um well we will make sure that um all of those details in regards to all of the books that you've just mentioned are in our show notes um we'll link them i know that they're all available and links are available on your website so we'll make sure that that's all in there because now i'm like i can't wait to get i'm an audiobook person so i'm hoping that um i have listened to a snippet on audible already of um of the new book mm. and um yeah I can't wait to hear oh, because now I want to know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> great. Thank this you. Um so we kind of dived into a few different topics there and, and it they obviously seem to be things that you're passionate about. Um but one of the things that w- we heard and learned about you as I was sharing your bio was um your the work that you're doing with APS. Mm. So um, can you tell us a little bit about APS and how um, what work they're doing at the moment? Yes,
1: so APS is a is a not for profit, um, and we established in two thousand and twelve. We we exist to um, support and inspire effective philanthropy, and and we do that. Um, in a couple of ways. Um, I won't get too technical on you, but we but we set up philanthropic structures called private ancillary funds um, mm-hmm. for individuals and, and families and businesses across Australia. And, and what a private ancillary fund is, is essentially a, a charitable trust or a charitable foundation where people, families, or corporates put money aside that's designated, usually in perpetuity, for charitable purposes. So we Help um, individuals and families set up these structures, and then we help them um, with the administration of those structures. There's a lot of reporting to the ATO and the ACNC, etc. We manage all of that. We make it easy and simple. Um, and then we also provide some some giving support, and that's where my role as as a specialist advisor and giving comes in. Where we where where our clients need it, we uh, assist them with everything from finding um, social investment opportunities that they may wish to support um, through mm-hmm. to due diligence on particular charities that they're considering supporting. Um, yeah. I also do quite a bit of family facilitation, engaging younger members of a family around, uh, you know, giving giving purpose within within a family so it's it's quite a niche role and often when I'm at dinner wow. parties pe- you know people say to me what do you do and I really <laughs> wish I could say oh I'm a podcaster <laughs> or Wouldn't that be great? you know or I'm a, I'm a I'm a journalist or you know
0: yeah something that would bite size for them that's, that's right but that being said that is incredible and and when I was looking at the APS website and trying to kind of uh, exactly, as you said, get my head around what what do they do and how does that work yes. and, and I was like, wow, this is fantastic because I would imagine that there are people out there that have no idea what to do and, and they want to make sure that they're doing things correctly and that hmm. funds are going to the right places and they're following all the right rules and, and so the work is actually, the the good work
1: that they're trying to do is actually being
0: done properly. Well, that's right.
1: And just, it's been a big growth story. So Australians are um, increasingly generous, even though there's often quite a bit of media uh, around the fact that we're not generous enough. Uh, Certainly in my work at APS, I see that that we are generous. So when we started APS in 2012, we started with about six of these structures, six families um, that had decided that they were going to you know go on a philanthropic journey with us if you like. and now mm-hmm. in in 2020 we we have in excess of 500 clients and oh. collectively they have put aside for charity more than a billion dollars. so they're giving,
0: oh, wow yes so they're that giving away
1: in Australia to Australian charities annually in excess of $110 million for all kinds of causes, causes, the environment, um, you know, medical research. There has been a bunch of them that have supported um, novel research into, you know, COVID-19-related vaccine, um, scientific endeavour, you know, uh, social enterprise. It's really very inspiring to see um, people, uh, corporates and families that have decided that, you know, they have enough money and they're going to put some aside and often quite a sizable chunk aside for community purposes. That's that's really inspiring.
0: Yeah. Oh, and that would be incredible to also the variety of charities that people have access to give to um, yeah. and seeing that range would be really inspiring. I think it's so interesting. We've kind of had this almost roller coaster of, Let's look at the good and bad of humanity in this conversation so far. and and we keep going up and down. Uh, we have these moments where we think, hmm, social media, not so great. Social media are amazing. People are amazing. Um, I just love the complexity of human beings, mm-hmm. and, and in your case, you get to create them in your stories and yes. and, um, and share their stories and how they develop as humans as well, which is pretty special. Now, we did touch really briefly a moment ago. On mental health, mm. um, obviously, in the context of social media and, and children and, and um, teens, but um, we also heard in your bio that you are a crisis support worker for a national suicide prevention hotline. Um, this year, for it's been a tough one. Um, mm. How has this year been working with that organisation and and? Uh, is there anything else that I guess for some, for me personally, um, i we've been really fortunate. We've we've gotten through this twenty year of twenty. I'm based in Metro Melbourne, so mm-hmm. we've we've done pretty well considering mm-hmm. everything that we've lived through so far. We're not in the clear yet, but we're we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, what has this year been like working with in that space of crisis support, and um, mm-hmm. and what I guess would you like? the general listeners to understand about what it's like to work in that space? Mm.
1: So it's been um, intense. <laughs> uh, obviously, you know, the crisis support line that I that I work for um, or that I volunteer for, I should say, um, you know, and I'm one of 10,000 volunteers that sustain the service, um, you know, there are over a million calls under normal circumstances to that hotline mm. every year. Um, and this year, obviously, there's been a huge upswing in calls and during um, the first uh, national lockdown, if you like. Um, yeah, in, 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 that in March, kind of March. March april January. That's right. Yeah. We recorded the biggest um, call volume on record for both the month and in terms of um, maximum you know, largest number of calls in a, in a day in the history of the service, um, which is wow. a reasonably old service. And then mm-hmm. um, more recently, certainly, there has been a, another one of those spikes that reflected uh, specifically the situation that Victorians found themselves in. And uh, it, to be frank, obviously people have done, have, it's been incredibly tough for people and the, 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 what we do on the service is is, is fundamentally to, to listen to callers wherever they're at, um, and in terms of what I'd like people to understand about the service, it really is that um, it's it's available for everyone. Um, so we receive calls from from all types um, people who self identify as having. Diagnosed mental health issues, and those who have never had any contact with a mental health service in their life, but are feeling lonely, marginalised, um, concerned about the future, unsettled, um, mm-hmm. and, and it's a space of non-judgment. Um, and it really is. We 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 attempt it's just, we attempt to provide a support service that's really um, just effectively meeting people where where they're at um Mm. to to prevent um prevent an escalation of wherever they're at um and Mm -hmm. i think you know it's without a doubt that despite living in one of the most fortunate well-resourced countries in the world um many australians have um have understandably struggled during covid19 and specifically the lockdown in victoria and uh it's been a real privilege actually to work as a volunteer on a national um, hotline such as this to, to mm. walk alongside individuals as far as I'm able to um, yeah. and to to be there for them because, I mean, it gets bandied around in the media all the time, you know, we're all in this together. Well, <laughs> yes and no, Right. We're not all we're in this all together very, if, we, very, if, we, if, you know, we're if, if you are Very different 2020s, that's for sure. Yes. So, you know, I suppose it's one, for me personally, it's been one small way of being able to express some solidarity with mm. um, others who are going through things that I'm not, recognising that we're all going through things as well yeah. and and just allowing for that common humanity and allowing for that space and and to be able to give people the a space to vent if they wish to or to to cry or to scream or to whatever it is that they need to do um and to fundamentally let them know that they're not alone
0: Mm. well that like obviously this is work that you were doing pre-2020 or pre-covid um but um to you and obviously anyone else that's out there volunteering and, and providing services like this, um, you know, just thank you because I I know people that have used services um, like the one that you uh, volunteer with, and it has made the, it's the tipping point of difference in mm. the right direction for them in most cases. Mm. And uh, and how fortunate are we that? That organisations like that exist. So um,
1: that's right. So, and that and that sounds incredible. And you know, circling back to the conversation about philanthropy, uh, irrespective of the service, whether it's you know Lifeline or Beyond Blue or Kids Helpline, um, a lot of it, a lot of these services are, of course, partially government funded. Some of them more so than others, but um, often they've started life as a philanthropic investment. You know, somebody's decided I'm going to throw some money at this problem because I don't want it. I don't want this problem to escalate. And so full circle in the conversation.
0: (laughs) I love it. Now, I had a giggle when I read your bio and um, you mentioned arguing with your children about monopoly. And I laughed because. Um, My youngest is eight and so we've only just this, especially this time of restrictions, we've had time at home together. So um, we've played a lot of games, a lot of card games, a lot of board games. We probably opted for the Monopoly card game over traditional Monopoly. But tell us about your household (laughs) and is Monopoly a a regular thing or is this Mm. just a causes arguments.
1: Oh, it's it's both unfortunately. I have a I have a deeply love-hate relationship with Monopoly and I much prefer the card game too because it's so discreet and feeling- Yeah, it's such a good game. Well, that's right. And traditional Monopoly is a little bit like Test cricket. You know, why would you do it when you can do a one day? You know, yeah, (laughs) or a big batch. (laughs) That's why I don't play it very often. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite painful. I mean, the kids love it, especially since we were gifted um, Monopoly EFT version. So there's a little, I know, this is, you should, I don't know what I think about this, but the kids have this little device, which you're not actually using the traditional paper cash anymore. You're using Monopoly credit cards to buy and sell your properties.
0: Oh my goodness. That <laughs>
1: awesome. That would be fun. Yes. Although you have to watch the banker because he's just holding this this device in his hand or her hand and they're just pressing buttons and going, Oh yes, yes, I transferred the one mil. I really did. So um but yeah, You've gotta you've gotta trust the banker regardless when you're playing Monopoly. You've
0: gotta be able to trust the banker. And sometimes Monopoly gets way too competitive. It, oh, that is so funny! Well, I didn't know that version existed. So we've been playing Monopoly Deal. We played Monopoly Millionaire, which we didn't really love, mm-hmm. but Monopoly Deal we've enjoyed. And mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. It's crazy to think how many um, different versions we've got—a Star Wars version and another version, and
1: Harry Potter version. Ones. Yes, and yeah. you know, you know, as part of my work at APS, and probably because I've been so scarred by playing hundreds and hundreds of games of Monopoly. I decided to <laughs> invent the converse, which I which which is called the giving game and it's not monopoly, it's philanthropy. Oh. <laughs> I think that's fun. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and I use it with our clients that have Younger younger children. It's basically a it's it's a traditional board game. It's still in sort of beta testing uh, version at the moment, but um, it's a board game, and it, you know instead of um, you know trying to take properties off each other <laughs> or out out buy <laughs> them sure out out give each other. That's, that's out. correct. Out. Or or solve oh. solve complex community problems together as a. City.
0: Oh, that's brilliant! So is that actually? So is that something that you're
1: going to launch once it's once you finish testing? Well, I hope I you know I hope so. I have a bunch of little projects, and it's something I'm I, I use on and off at at APS, but um, I haven't really given it the sort of time and thought that perhaps I should. But I, I'd love to. I don't know when. I just there's not enough well, hours in the day.
0: What's this space? I think that's a great idea yeah, for the game. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> very much the narrative from let's take over the world and get all the monies to um, let's do good and give back. Yes, yes. Yeah. Community problems. Yeah. So you sound like you're very creative. You've just released your book. You've got a board game supposedly on the way, which I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna, <laughs> going to check in with you because I think that's a great idea. <laughs> are there any other projects on the horizon, or is it timed other than obviously book launches and anything that you can do? Knowing we've got a few COVID restrictions and things still in place, mm-hmm. are there any other? projects
1: on the horizon or are you just looking forward to some holidays now oh i'm looking forward to some summer holidays and to spending time with the kids on holidays because of course term four it's coming to a close and it's just you know it's mm. we are kind of galloping to the end of the year even though the the year went so slowly on a daily basis it's gone so quickly on a monthly basis so yes um, i can't believe it's well. almost christmas and i'm i'm just looking forward to spending some time with the kids when they're when they finish school for
0: the year. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm definitely at that point as well. I feel like I, we were in this dark doom of restrictions, especially here in Metro Melbourne, and now mm. I've blinked and, I, and people are talking about, well, I'm talking about Christmas as well, but um, only because I like to get organised early. But, wow, I can't get over how quickly the year's gone. Yes. So... We talked really briefly um, earlier when we, you were sharing the experience of your first book that you have some beautiful friends um, and people in your life. Well, who comes to mind, kind of top of mind of who inspires you
1: and why? Mm, oh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> and I, again, I'm, I apologise for the cliche, but the top of mind one is is my mum.
0: Oh, that's not a cliche. That's lovely. oh
1: it's true. And and
0: now, mum, listen at about forty-eight minutes. (laughs) Shout out to your (laughs) husband and your (laughs) mum.
1: So, mum, mum, you know we we grew up. My my sisters and I am one of three. We grew up in in quite difficult circumstances. My father had a. Um, a debilitating neurological condition that in fact rendered him definitionally neurodiverse. So it's it's quite interesting that, um, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up with that experience. But but mum, um, you know, what, what I didn't really appreciate as a child, I was aware of it, but now that I'm an adult um, with kids of my own and in that period of life that I was perhaps blind to, when my mum was going through it I really see how hard she worked to as a carer you know of, of my yeah. dad but also of yeah. three kids and working full-time and just turning up in the way that mums do um, yeah. and you know I've I find her continually inspiring I mean she looked after my dad for for 20 years before he was finally um had, had to you know had to be permanently um hospitalized in a care facility um and just I dedicated my book the mother's group to her and you know she's still inspiring in, in her 70s um so I find her inspiring um but yeah I mean daily at APS I get inspired <laughs> by social entrepreneurs but um you know, I perhaps I I think I think Mum possibly beats them all <laughs> for me. She
0: take, takes the top mark, yeah. which is rightly so. She sounds pretty incredible. Well, yeah, you'll have to get her to have a listen. I think she'll she'll appreciate that um, acknowledgement because I think sometimes we we don't realise the impact that we've had, especially when we're just doing what we're doing. Mm. She would be just doing the things she knew that she wanted and needed to do for the man that she loved and the children that she loved mm. and, and loved. Um, but, yeah, that's incredible. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today on She Inspires Me. For our listeners, we will ensure that all of the details um, for books and and um, the organisations that we've shared uh, are in our show notes Um We can't wait to share with you more. Um, But thank you again, Fiona, for being a guest on the podcast today. Thanks so much, Caroline. Thank you for joining us today and being a part of this incredible community. Remember to hit subscribe and join us in our next episode to be inspired by more exceptional women.